Bibles with me to 1 John this morning. If you're new and you are not familiar with what we do here, um, essentially in 2013, I I started in Mark, and we taught the gospel of Mark. And uh, when we got done with Mark, we went to Acts. And when we got done with Acts, we went to Romans. And we've actually gotten through all the way to 1 John. We believe that it takes the entire Bible to make a whole Christian, just like a balanced diet. And so um, there's lots of topics that I don't hit very often, basically because the Bible doesn't hit them as often as sometimes the church does. And so that said, we finished 2 Peter last week, and this week we're in 1 Peter. So if you ever want to know, like, how can I get ready to receive God's Word on a Sunday morning, just go to the next book, 1 John. Did I say something else? Yeah, you know, like I said, first uh, John. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. So, that said, first uh, John chapter 1 this morning. Now, uh, don't be mad at me, Kathy, but I didn't make slides this week. Uh, but basically, I didn't make slides this week because we're going to introduce the book. In first John, uh, we have a letter that is written to the New Testament church by John himself. Now, there are multiple Johns. As my son, his favorite character in the Bible is John Baptist. John Baptist. Read story about John Baptist, Dad. Um, this was not written by John the Baptist. It was actually written around 90 A.D. by the Apostle John. And we believe this, although it doesn't say it. It looks like it's ghost-written. It doesn't say who wrote it. But in Second and Third John, they both are very short letters, and it starts by talking, uh, basically saying, from the elder. Now, uh, in Second uh, John, it says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. So it's like using this figurative language. And in Third John, it also is addressed from the elder to the beloved Gaius. So it's written to a specific person. But in First John, it actually just starts out by saying, uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, The life was manifested, and we have seen, and we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we now declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things I write to you, that your joy may be full." And so I don't know about you guys, but that to me, on first reading, if you haven't read it this week, can seem like a lot, and maybe even for some of you grammar Nazis, it might seem like a run-on sentence. Like that was a lot in just four verses. And what you get with the Apostle John is you get a lot in each verse. You just do. But the cool thing is, is that we see that John wrote this book, I believe, because if you look at what he writes in 1 John... It parallels John chapter 13 through chapter 17, which was the end of Jesus' life. So the things that John writes in here, he has really no authority to speak them, except he heard them from Jesus himself. And so he's going to amplify some of the things that Jesus taught them. And he's saying in these first four verses, I'm telling them to you because I heard them from the man himself. I heard them from Jesus. We saw him, he revealed himself to us, and so now I'm testifying that which I've been shown. 
So the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's what he referred to himself in the gospel according to John. He said, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he, every time he refers to himself, he doesn't mention his name. Now, uh, we also see that this is the John, the son of Zebedee, mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. So that said, uh, the theme of 1 John, I think it's important that we look at why people, intentions matter, don't they? You know, God looks on the heart. And sometimes what we do, we, we don't always intend to do, but we have intentions for doing what we do. And so in 1 John, he writes three different verses that I believe kind of sum up why he wrote the, the letter to the church. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, we already read it. He says, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And so he's writing to them so they can actually have fullness of joy. Interestingly enough, if you turn to John chapter 15... This echoes what he has already written in his gospel account. John chapter 15, verse 11. He says, I'll wait for you to get there. I like to hear the pages turn in. That is the best sound ever. It is. John chapter 15, verse 11. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And so he writes to them, and then if you turn to chapter 16, I wrote it in my Bible here, verse 24, actually start in verse 23, Jesus saying, after he ascends, he says, in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you do ask the Father in my name, he will give you. He says, until now you have asked nothing in my name. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So he's, he's telling them how their joy may be full. So the question is, what is joy? What is joy? I would submit to you that joy is not happiness. And I heard it said this way this week. Happiness is when you get a brand new car. Why is it happiness instead of joy? Because that happiness, that new car, can be taken from you in a moment. Whether you don't make the payment and somebody comes and repos it, or uh, say you're excited about it, you're driving it, you're checking out all the new gadgets, you're looking at the infotainment system, and you're driving, you're so excited, you got the, the convertible top down, you're going for it, you haven't even insured the thing yet. Ronnie, don't get nervous. But you haven't even insured it yet, and you're looking down, and you look up, and there's a tree. You're off the road, you hit the tree. Now, in our neighborhood, there's not a whole lot of grace on the side of the road. So that could happen. You hear the rumble strips, it can still be too late. And so at that point, you wreck the car, you're bummed. Your joy, you thought was joy, is taken from you. And I would submit to you that the joy that the Bible speaks about cannot be taken because joy can be had when the circumstances, forgive me, suck. But happiness can be robbed from us. And uh, there was a band in the 90s, maybe some of you know it, called Our Lady Peace. And they had, a, uh, they had an album called uh, Happiness is Not a Fish That You Can Catch. And I think that's very true. And so that said, here we have, he says, I want your joy to be full. Jesus wanted our joy to be full. 
the Apostle John writes this letter for you and I. He wants your joy to be full, even overflowing. He wants us to experience the joy of the Lord that the psalmist wrote about. He says, the joy of the Lord is actually my strength. And we oftentimes find strength in other things, but again, those things can be taken from us. We get older, we lose our strength. Then where does our strength come from? The joy of the Lord. Having joy in who He is, what He has done, and what He promises to do will give you strength when you got no strength, when you're dunsies. And so in 1 John, he continues, and if you look at it, it's in actually in, in chapter 2. He says, My children, verse 1, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So he wants our joy to be full, and he wants us to be free from sin. And that's what the gospel is. He actually says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the, the power of the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God revealed from faith to faith. And so the power of God is not only to save us, but it's to continually keep us from the power of sin. And so he writes so that our joy may be full. He writes these things to you so that you may not sin. And then in chapter 5, if you turn there with me in verse 13, he then repeats this phrase, these things I write to you so. And he says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I want you to be assured that the salvation that you have believed in is yours and no one can strip it from you. Assurance of salvation. Now, when I was a fledgling believer, fledgling, that's a word, right? When I was a fledgling believer, here's what happened. I said a prayer, I believed something, but I didn't have assurance of salvation. Number one, I was still overrun by sin. I was told that I would be set free from sin. Well, I didn't realize at the time that there were some certain decisions I was going to have to make in joint agreement with God that certain things are sin, I'm going to have to flee from them. I'm going to have to forsake them. You know, that vow that's made in weddings. We forsaking all others, I'm giving my life to you. That's what Christianity is. You're married to Christ. Forsaking sin, I give myself entirely to being a slave. No longer to sin, Paul writes, but now a slave to righteousness, a slave to Jesus. We give our will over to our king. And so he says, I write these things so that your joy may be full. And I would submit to you that your joy will be full when you are free from sin, indwelling sin, the practice of sin, the love of sin, but also that your joy will be full when you have assurance that nothing that God's promised to you can be taken from you. That his covenant love for us is not null and void when we mess it up. He loves unashamedly. He loves unconditionally. And yet, Lord, we, we at the same time have to embrace that love and forsake certain things. And so, 1 John was written so that our joy may be full. And I don't know about you guys, but in this season where things are so busy, that's good news. John wants our joy to be full. And one of the ways that can it be full is that we can be reminded of what we have believed, 
who we have believed in and who's going to be faithful to complete our salvation until the day that we see Christ face to face. So that said, why is he, another reason that he's writing this is because there was a group, there was a crisis in the church. There was a crisis. Now, when there's a crisis in your children's lives, what do you do? You swipe in, you swipe in, you swoop in. There we go. I'm conjugating English verbs. I can't do Spanish ones. Why could I be able to do English? He swoops in as a parent. We swoop in and we assure them that we love them, right? And then we also give them instruction on how they can avert the tragedy. And sometimes it works and they listen and sometimes not so much. But here's the deal. Why would he write to them so their joy would be full, that they may not sin, and that they would be assured of their eternal salvation? Because there was a group of individuals that had departed from the church, and they started to question and actually teach that Jesus was not, in fact, the Son of God, and that he wasn't the Jewish Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied about. They questioned his lordship. They questioned his deity, whether or not he was God. They questioned whether or not his atonement for their sin was good enough. And so when you get that questioned, you're questioning everything that our faith is built upon. You're questioning whether or not the foundation that our lives have been built upon is going to hold through the storm, whether it's actually going to hold through death. If Jesus died and didn't rise again, and he wasn't who he said he was, you cannot believe people that say he was a good teacher. Because if he was a good teacher and everything he taught was a lie, then that's not good. Even from a worldly perspective, he's a big fat liar. He's a false teacher. And if he lies to gain converts and to gain followers, he can't be trusted. If he didn't raise in the dead, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is in vain because when we die, guess what happens? We just die. There's no hope. And so this group comes in and they deny three things. They denied that Jesus is the awaited Messiah. They denied it. They said he's not the Messiah. They denied that Jesus is the Son of God. And they generated hostility within the church. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, I know I'm jumping around this morning, and we'll get to it in its context, but in 1 John 3, verse 4 through 10, it says this, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him, being Jesus, does not sin, and whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And then he writes this phrase again, little children. Now, he's not talking down to the church. He's written this in 90 AD. He's an old man. He gets to say and call us little children because he sees the church as his children, and he treats us like so. Not like talking down to us, but he, with this grandfather love. Not the godfather, that's a little different, but like a grandfather that just loves his grandkids. And for those of you that have grandkids, you know what I'm talking about. It's just, uh, you, you just, you just it, they're just so cute. They could do no wrong. I'd just do anything for them. 
and, and we won't get into the stuff that I don't like. Like, we'll just disobey the parents and do whatever for them, you know. But the, the love for grandkids is one where it, you just want to show them how much you love them because you don't know how long you have with them. And I think that's John here. John doesn't know when he's going to die. It could happen any time. He's old. And so he's, I want you to be assured. I want you to know the love of the Father. I experienced it firsthand, John says. He, the, the biggest thing about John is that he recognized not what Jesus did for him, not how cool the miracles were, not that he walked on water, but that he loved John. John knew he was loved. That's special. We demean it. We diminish it. We make it mean nothing. Okay, you love me. Great. John knew that he was loved by Jesus. They actually call him the apostle of love. And so here we have him saying this, that little children, let no one deceive you. Why would he say that? Because people were trying to deceive them. He says, don't let anybody deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. And he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed or manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, there's a teaching in the church that says, once I became, become saved, I can no longer sin. And that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is whoever's been born of God will not continue in sin. There will not be this indwelling pattern that doesn't stop. If you're a person that feels like you have been caught in sin for way too long and you feel shamed by it, if you are convicted even in the slightest bit, that is a sign that the Holy Spirit isn't in you. And don't be condemned by it. Be convicted. Condemnation pushes you away from God. Conviction drives you to him and says, Lord, I'm overcome. This thing, it's too big for me. I can't fight it. I need you. If there's even an ounce of that in you, that's a sign that the Spirit indwells you. You are a child of God. Give yourself over to that conviction. Give yourself. Be bold. As, as hard as you've been sinning, repent just as hard. You will be rewarded. And guess what? your joy will be full. It will be. And so they denied that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, we see the word Messiah. Maybe some of you will see it and you go, okay, what's that mean? Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one, the one that Jesus, the one that God said he would send uh, in the likeness of David, a descendant of David, who would fulfill all these prophecies in the Old Testament. He would be the one to come and deal with sin and to judge the world. Now, what they didn't understand is that when he came, he would come to deal with the sins of the world, a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. And that lamb came to take away the sin of the world. They were looking for a Messiah that would come in and be a political savior. Now, no matter what side of the fence you lay on right now, politically in our country, we are all looking many times for a political savior. So you can relate. They want somebody to come in and make things what they think they should be. And the Jews were no different. They were looking for a political Messiah. 
But what they didn't realize is that the prophecy for the Messiah wasn't about politics. It was about redeeming mankind, not just the Jews, but also all mankind. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so here in this text, we have this denial of Jesus as the Messiah, the denial of Jesus as the Son of God. Excuse me for a second. Coffee. Oh, that's good. Jesse, thanks for making coffee. Makes my day every time. So there are key ideas from John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. So I would encourage you in your free time, because we all have so much, but find some time, carve it out. If you don't know what to read in scripture and you don't have a plan, this week I would submit to you, read John 13 through 17. Read those, just those chapters. You're going to be refreshed. You're going to see how much Jesus truly loved his disciples And hopefully you can see that that love is extended to you as well through those disciples. But John's writing for damage control from these false teachers. He's writing to assure the churches that God is with you, that he is the Messiah, and as you adhere yourselves to the truth, he's going to bless you in the midst of that. So let's go back to our verses, and we'll pick them apart just a little bit with the time we have left. Verse 1, 1 John. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. This life was manifested or revealed, and we have seen and bear witness, and we declare to you this eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. So stop, stop there for just a second, because he's, he's giving eyewitness testimony. Someone tells you that Jesus is not who he says he is. John comes along and says, yes, he is. And I'm going to tell you based on what I've seen, what I've looked upon. And in verse one there, he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Now, this word in the Greek, looked upon, is not like I got a a glimpse of it. The other night we were driving down E Highway, and usually my wife sees the deer. We saw 13 deer. We're so excited. And there's babies, and the spots are off. Like, it's deer season, and I'm excited. So as we're driving, I'm seeing them. My wife usually sees them. And she does that thing that wives do, (gasps) which gives us guys a heart attack every time. She doesn't do that as much anymore because I literally complain every time. Um, but we're growing in grace. But in the middle of that, we have this, uh, she saw the deer, but she didn't see them. So we turned around and they were still standing there. So we didn't just glimpse at them, we looked at them. But that's not even the right idea of this word, looked upon. It actually means to gaze steadfastly upon. It's not a quick glimpse. It's not even a long glimpse. It's they gazed upon him. Think about this. John's speaking from a position of he literally traveled everywhere with Jesus for three years. Now, you can fake it for an hour a week. You might even be able to fake it for eight hours a day at your job. You cannot fake it when you live with somebody all day 
and you go with them everywhere. You are going to learn everything about each other, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So that's what John's speaking from here. That which I gazed upon. I think that the disciples were with Jesus, and as they saw him, many times in Scripture it actually says they were in awe. Think about the time where Jesus was on the boat with them. He falls asleep. He's been ministering all day. He says, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. He's going to heal a demoniac in the Gadarenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But he's tired, and they're traveling. So he did what a lot of us like to do when we're driving. One of us drives. We say, hey, I'm going to stay up with you the whole time. And then he went to sleep. And in the middle of his sleep, what happens? A great storm comes in, and in the nation of Israel, on the Sea of Galilee, the geography is so much that in moments, if you're out fishing, that can happen. The only thing I have to compare it to is a story my dad told me. In Wisconsin, they used to borrow a buddy's boat. We'd go up and stay in a cabin on Blueberry Lake, and we'd go out on the lake, and we'd go fishing. Except this time, we were back, and my mom went out on the lake, and she wanted to sunbathe on the deck boat. And a storm blows in so quickly that it dropped 30 to 40 degrees. Now, I don't know if that's reality, but that happens. And when that happens, the wind picks up because there's a front moving in. And that's what happened on the Sea of Galilee. And when that happened, Jesus was so tired that he stayed asleep. He's exhausted. And so I love this because we see the humanity of Jesus. And yet, when the disciples wake him up, what do they do? They shake him, which is great. Dads love that when their kids, hey, dad, 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 Woo! you wake up and you just like, you want to off them. I, I, <laughs> you do. Let's be honest, folks. But the reality is Jesus didn't wake up and go, what are you doing? And throw him out of the boat. He woke up and he said, what? And they said, there's a storm. Don't you even care? And instead of rebuking them and saying, what's your problem? He actually rebukes the sea and the wind. And it says there that they go, they've been with him before this, by the way. They've seen miracles before this, by the way. And their response is, they are in fear and awe. Who could this guy be? We have never seen anything like this. And so I love this because when John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have gazed upon steadfastly, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, that which was manifested, and we have seen, and I am bearing witness, and I declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and has now been manifested to us, the idea is eternal life is in Jesus. It's, manif- it's revealed in the person, and not only the words, but the character of Jesus. He was who he said he was. He says, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, we now declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That word fellowship there is koinonia. It means to be in union with. Now, in, in Jewish culture, if you share a meal with somebody, you have fellowship with them. You're eating from the same bread. And so, in essence, the bread that you're eating and the bread that they're eating are from the same loaf. And so, when you eat that same loaf together, you're sharing life. 
and that life is now unified. That's why sharing meals is such an important aspect of any culture, because that's where culture is transmitted to the next generation. That's why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, that we would eat together as a body of believers, even if we don't have a potluck. And we would remember that the loaf that we're eating from, the bread of life, is Jesus himself. That that Jesus was tangible, that he had flavor, that he had uh, life-giving sustenance. Bread in the Middle East is everything. Uh, We have some good bread here, and you can get the whole grain, but you want to taste some good bread? Go to the Middle East. They make bread like it's nobody's business. They make bread like we like to make pizza. I love pizza. But that bread has so much life in it. And so I'm getting all excited about food. We must be getting close to lunch. So he says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you. Now he also makes a case in verse 1 in the simple phrase, That which was from the beginning. And I like this because John's epistle starts here and it kind of resonates with John chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. John has this flowing language and he does kind of a poetic writing. And if, as we're studying 1 John, I want you to realize that it's not linear. He doesn't go this point, then this point, then this point, like Peter did and like Paul has for the last several years we've been studying Paul. He actually kind of circles around with the same ideas. And anytime an idea is repeated in Scripture, it's actually for emphasis. Rather than getting louder, which you can't do in written form, they repeat the same phrase or the same theme. And so in, first, or in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning, he starts with the same phrase. That which was from the beginning. And in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He, underline that in your Bible if you've never underlined it. Verse 2 starts with he. He's talked about the word, but now he says he, describing the word. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus is the creator. So he's not just some human emanation of God character. He's actually God himself. And so in him was life, And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So go down there to verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there is actually tabernacle in the Hebrew, or excuse me, in the Greek. And the word tabernacle is the same word that parallels the Hebrew word for tabernacle when they met with God in his presence. Moses would meet with God in the meeting place, and it was this tent of meeting, is what it was called. And then when they built the tabernacle, or the, the, eventually what became the words, you know, the, the temple, there it is. It was on the temple mount where they built this fixture that would stay there essentially forever. It would become the throne of God, the dwelling place where man could interact with God. It was the temple, but now the temple of God does not, it's not the same thing. It's not a location. It's now he's made us his temple. Paul writes to the Corinthians that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The place where we can meet with God is actually within us. It's not us like Oprah says. There's not a little bit of God in each one of us, but he has 
poured out his spirit upon the hearts of men and given us a place where we can interact with him. He tabernacles now in those who believe in his name and follow him. And so he says, um, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory as the, the only begotten of the Father. Begotten is that word you read in Genesis, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. But essentially, he reproduced, but not like we do, but he was full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared God the Father, essentially. And so, if you read Genesis 1, you get this same thing, that Jesus was a part of the Godhead, the Trinity. The Elohim is a, it's, it's a plural word, but it has singularity in its meaning. And so, what we get from what he's saying in even just the first few words is, is that Jesus was before time. Jesus was outside of time. And when he took on flesh and dwelt among us, he wasn't what the Jehovah's Witnesses say, which is that he was just an emanation, that he wasn't really flesh. But if he wasn't really flesh, then there was no one that died for our sins. And so that's hacking away at the very crux of our belief in what Jesus has done for us. He's made atonement. And so my point in saying all of this is that in the beginning was the word of life. And Jesus is that word, and that word became flesh. That word dwelt among us, and now we have him. And we have the testimony of the apostles, and we can take it or leave it. John says here, we have all the evidence to stake our claim that he was who he said he was, he is who he says he is, that he, don't, he's not even done yet. Now that he's ascended to the Father, he ever lives to intercede on our behalf that his work was finished on the cross, and yet he still sits at the right hand of God the Father, the hand of power, and he's praying for you and I, that we would see him for who he is, that we would receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to be filled with his presence, and that he says here, we would have fellowship with God. That which we, you have seen and heard, we declare to you, verse 3, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And he says all this again. He said, these things we write to you that you may have fullness of joy. And so, before we get into our study, he wants us to know. He wants us to know who Jesus is, what he has said about you and I, who he revealed himself to, and what his desire is to give us a future and a hope, a living hope. Peter writes about that in 1 Peter. We've been given a living hope. And so the question I have for you this morning is, we're at a place of crisis in the church today. 
And I don't think that the crisis is whether or not we have enough churches. I think the crisis is that we have a lot of people that have been in church their whole life that are not yet in Christ. And so the question I have for you this morning is, are, are you at a place where you are in Christ, truly in Christ, or are you in crisis? Are you denying the deity of Christ? Are you acknowledging him with your lips and yet not giving him lordship? Are you denying that Jesus is the Son of God and then therefore saying that he has no authority in my life? Because if those things are true, that will generate hostility in your life. That will generate an unsurety. That will keep you locked in sin. That will keep you locked in shame. And Jesus died to set us free from that. So I want you to recognize that the reason Jesus came was not just to get your will done on earth. Actually, he didn't come for you at all to get your will done. He came to fulfill the will of the Father and in doing so, reveal that the will of the Father extends into your life. He made you for a purpose. One of those purposes is fellowship with him that will make everything else in your life meaningful and, and good and give you joy even when it's hard. And so, Father, um, I thank you for the Apostle John. I thank you for his testimony. I thank you for his willingness to lay down this claim and to beat the drum. It was not comfortable for him. He was thrown in jail. He was given visions from you. But more than that, he knew you and he knew that he was loved by you. And so, Father, maybe that's something we can relevate. Excuse me, not relevate. <laughs> maybe that's something that we can revel in this morning. More than what you've done for us, more than the blessings you can give us, more than the things that we're stressed about, we're not sure how they're going to come to fruition. Lord, we, we revel this week in the fact that we're loved by you, that you left heaven, the most comfortable place ever. You put on human flesh, the most corruptible thing ever. And you dwelt among us to reveal the love of the Father so that you could re re reconcile us. Despite all of our sin, you wanted fellowship with us. I don't know about anybody else, but that, it doesn't make sense to me. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. So many times we hear about people being willing to die for others, but you did it. And so, Father, please help us to relish the fact that we're loved by the creator of the universe and that he loves us even when we're unlovely. Lord, thank you for your love. May it give us assurance that what you say and what you promise for our future is in fact able to be trusted. May it give us hope that your power to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that you've offered to us if we'll ask for it so that we can no longer be chained in slavery and bondage to sin. Free us up from the things that entangle us. Help us to forsake our sin. Give us not only the, the willingness, but the forthrightness to go through with it. Lord, we love you, and we want, it, we want others to know about you. Give us fullness of joy. In Jesus' name, amen.